Well, good morning. Um, after the service uh, last week, uh, David Kelling was here and his uh, friend Robin, and they asked me a question. What's with the stuff on the crosses? I think I'm a little hot, Andrew. What's with the stuff on the cross? You may have noted that the crosses here in the sanctuary are veiled, right? So uh, that cross up there, that cross there, that one there, that one there. Uh, they are veiled. Does anybody know, other than David, whom I told last week, why the crosses are veiled? Anybody want to guess? Shannon? You know it's... What's that? Uh, well, he actually was. Uh, okay. Uh, Beth? Um, all of these are possible answers. Uh, the fact is, this is one of the most important things that I learned in my liturgy class. Um, sometimes we do things in church and then later on come up with an explanation as to why we do them, right? Um, uh, so most likely the veiling has to do with this being the season of Lent. The color purple is the, is the color for Lent. And during Lent, Lent is a time of... Uh, of self-denial, Lent is a time of abstinence, Lent is a time, uh, yes, where we are uh, anticipating uh, the fact that Jesus, uh, having been crucified, raises, rises from the dead uh, on Easter, but uh, there's a sense in which um, often it is considered to be appropriate during Lent um, to withdraw from things that are pleasurable or beautiful. Right, so one reason that uh, that the the cross is veiled is it's sort of a reminder to us. These are also beautiful objects of art. Um, you also notice the mosaics have little curtains across them. Right, the beautiful mosaics on the reredos. Reredos is a fancy name for that big marble thing behind the, the altar. Um, these mosaics are covered up, and and that that is part of a Lenten discipline. That was a tradition in this church that we're continuing. Um, but, uh, you know, different churches do it differently. I was at a, uh, at a church this week for a meeting um, where uh, their practice is that they veil anything that is, that they don't, they don't want to have anything brass during Lent. Um, so uh, they swap out their candlesticks on the altar for wooden candlesticks. Some churches do that. In fact, we have a pair of wooden candlesticks back in the sanctuary, uh, in the sacristy that we could use to, to uh, in place of those. Um, the way this church, uh, they also have uh, torches, sort of portable candles that they will use when they, uh, in some churches, when they read the gospel, they sort of walk out in the middle of the people with it, and there's a person standing on each side with a torch. Um, well, so at, at this church, they don't have portable torches that are wooden. We actually do here, uh, but they don't. And so during Lent, the way they used to do it was they would do the reading, but they wouldn't have the torches. Now, why did they, have, why did they used to have the torches when they would do the reading? Because they couldn't see without it. Yeah, that's, that's actually the reason that there, there are can, traditionally there are candles on the altar, because otherwise the priest couldn't see a darn thing. Um, but, uh, but my colleague likes the symbolism of the torches. She didn't want to lose the torches. But the only torches they have uh, have brass stands. So I'm not making this up. They actually veil the brass stands. It's like these, these torches are wearing skirts at this church, like little, little tiny skirts. At this church, and that's you know, but that's that's part of the discipline. The, the 
the question that, that arises when we see this is what, what is being signified by this, right? What does this mean? And the same thing goes with uh, things like clothing or, or hairstyle or, or makeup. Um, you know, we, we know uh, of the, the dispute over the, uh, the hijab. Uh, many Muslim women will wear a hijab. They'll have their, their hair uh, covered, their face covered. Um, uh, as for some, it, they understand that as a sign of modesty and self-control. Others would regard it as a sign of chauvinism and of patriarchy and oppression, and the two could well coexist. So in a, in a country like France, for example, uh, not only is this seen as a sign of chauvinism, it's actually seen as a, as a rejection of the secular values of the culture. The same was true in Turkey decades ago. And so uh, the, the practice of wearing certain types of clothing is prohibited specifically because it's seen as a rejection of that national culture. Uh, but, but it's that way with, with uh, all kinds of things. If, if a man is wearing makeup in one context, it may mean that he is uh, trying to dress as a woman. In another context, it may simply be that he is going on stage or he's going on television and he has to wear it so he doesn't look washed out. Um, in, in, uh, in terms of hairstyle, that's something that changes over the years, right? So in some cultures, uh, David having long hair would be considered something that, is, that means he is uh, a hippie, he's undisciplined, um, that he's rejecting, uh, he's rejecting the man, right? Um, in other cultures, for him to have long hair uh, means that he's expressing his masculinity and his virility, uh, in other cultures, it may just mean that he doesn't like paying for haircuts. Uh, it really, you know, it, it just depends. Uh, and it's funny that we're talking about this today when like, literally in the last couple of weeks, a couple of the women in the congregation have gone with the short haircut, Beth and, uh, and uh, Jen first. Um, so in, in, in some places, that would be seen as a, an act of rebellion. It would be seen as an act of denying uh, or an act of gender nonconformity. Um, Whereas in others, it means um, either that you're just doing the mommy cut because you're sick of having your hair grabbed at, uh, or that you just prefer it. it. It really all depends on the context. And so that's something we have to keep in mind when we encounter something like the text we have today. As I warned you, um, today is when things really start getting weird in First Corinthians. Chapters 11 through 14 include some of the weirdest stuff that we find in the New Testament and, and frankly, some of the stuff that can be the most offensive. And some people, when they read it, will simply choose to be offended and to ignore it. Uh, others will say, well, I'm offended, but I guess this is what the Bible says, so I have to follow it. And others will say, well, hmm, so I'm bothered by this. Let me figure out what that means. And I think that's the way that is most productive to approach this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, uh, having read through the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, are the Corinthians uh, remembering Paul in everything? No. Are, are they holding to the teachings just as he passed them on? No, not really. No. This could be uh, the rhetorical device of the captatio benevolentiae, which means basically you're taking, uh, you're, you're seizing somebody's affection by saying something nice to them, right? Or it could be that Paul is being passive-aggressive. Um, 
We don't know. What, what we know is that he says, basically, I praise you for this, and now I'm going to go talk about how you're completely screwing everything up. So, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, settle down. Listen to him. Let's hear him out. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's as though her head were shaved. If a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, then she should cover her head. A man not, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And for this reason, and because of the angels, a woman ought to have authority over her head. Now, in the Lord, though, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Her long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, there are a couple quick and easy responses to this. One is to say, well, the God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And there are churches where the standard practice is that women will have their heads covered when they come to worship, whether they have a, a simple veil or, or a, a, some sort of a crocheted uh, doily of some sort, or a hat. Um, and uh, in, in fact, in, I think in, in many of these churches, this is a, an authentic and, and uh, a very holy expression of reverence for those who practice it, others may find it to be annoying. There are also traditions in which, frankly, this teaching, which is all about propriety in worship, all about enabling people to worship in a way that doesn't call attention to themselves, but enables the congregation to focus on glorifying God, uh, actually ends up being a way of obeying the letter of the commandment, but wearing crazy hats that end up calling attention to yourself. But then, of course, and this is the most common response nowadays, we look at this and say, well, this is crazy. <laughs> now, you may say, this is crazy because I've come up in the church all my life and I've never seen any woman wearing a hat, and so this, clearly, there, this isn't something that we do. Why don't we do it? Well, I'm not sure. I just know that we don't. I don't really want to get into it. Uh, some people will say, well, obviously, Paul's a chauvinist. Obviously, Paul was raised in a patriarchal society, and uh, this was a patriarchal society, in fact, that Paul was writing into. And so, you know, we've evolved beyond that, so we don't have to worry about this kind of thing anymore. But I think there's a better way than that to do it. For one thing, uh, simply because a society is different from the one we're in doesn't mean that that society is inferior to the one that we're in. The, the march... The forward march of time is not necessarily the forward march of progress. And just as, as uh, Chesterton uh, spoke of the 
democracy of the dead, as tradition, of, uh, tradition as the democracy of the dead, giving people who have come before us a voice in weighing in on things that, uh, that we may need to pay attention to their wisdom on. Uh, but I think we also are supposed to, to do the work involved in understanding just what was the context in which Paul was writing this. Did men conventionally in Roman worship cover their heads? Well, we actually know from archaeological evidence that that probably was the case. Generally speaking, men would cover their heads in worship. And so it could be that for a man to not cover his head in Christian worship was a distinctive of worship in the church. It may be that this was a time when hair length was something that was a strong statement of ideology or of whether somebody was conforming culturally or not. That's not the case now, but at one point, or at, at other points in our history, that was the case. I, 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 at my barbers, they, they have a sign that says, hippies and long hairs enter in the back. You know, and, and now they put it up and it's just funny. It's sort of a relic of an earlier time, but it, like there was a time when they really meant it, like David would not be welcome. Yeah, I'm not planning to pick on you, but if you sit in the second row, this is just going to happen. Uh, but it's true, you know, and, and even today, you know, we're not, we're not in, like if we were in Brooklyn, you know, this would not be unusual. In fact, David would have a man bun probably. But, um, but today David will sometimes identify himself as I'm the guy with the long hair and the ponytail because there, there really aren't other guys with long hair and ponytails. This is a way he can distinguish himself, right? Um, and it's sort of morally neutral. It's, it's culturally neutral. Uh, this is just simply the way that, that he chooses to, to keep his hair. Um, but it, it very likely was the case in the first century in Corinth that there were statements being made by uh, the people who had uh, their hair in certain ways. And reading uh, what Paul says here and looking at the things that he says in, in chapter, especially coming up in chapter 14, but also in the rest of, of 11 and in 12 and in 13, it seems that there was a problem in Corinth involving people using worship as a means of having an experience but not being concerned about the way, in that ex- the way that that experience was affecting their neighbors. So they were having a religious experience. They were, were having, in fact, a, an ecstatic religious experience. They were, were thrilled and transported to a different place, but the way in which they did that was causing all kinds of problems. It was distracting other people. Uh, it was uh, bringing shame on the community. And therefore, Paul was saying, it's actually counterproductive. We're going to see next week, the way they're celebrating the Eucharist is messed up enough that Paul says, I would rather you not go to church. Seriously, I would rather you not go to church than that you go to church and do it, do it the way that you do it. So what we have to, in order to understand this, we also have to understand what some of, some of these words even mean, what some of the the phrases that he's mentioning. So, for example, in chapter 11, verse 10, he says, for this reason and because of the angels, a woman ought to have authority on her head. Well, because of the angels, what does that have to do with anything? Where, where has he been talking about angels before this? What, what does that mean? Is he, is he talking about uh, the, the angels who are understood to be perpetually worshiping God, falling down around his thrones and singing, holy, 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 
all the time? Is Paul saying, well, we're supposed to be emulating them in our worship? We're supposed to be operating in a way that glorifies and honors God undividedly like they do? Maybe. Maybe there's a sense that women having their heads uncovered uh, is understood to be disrespectful to those angels, or maybe even understood to be something that would would seem to be uh, a sign of, of promiscuity. And maybe Paul is saying that the angels need to not be distracted by these pretty women with their heads uncovered. We don't know exactly for sure. What we do know is that the word head, kephale in the Greek, was used in all kinds of different ways. So if we're going to understand what Paul's doing here, we need to know that, that head could mean all sorts of things. It could mean the thing that sits on top of your neck, right? Um, but the, the word could also be used in all kinds of metaphorical ways. So when we talk about counting heads or head of cattle, the head stands in place of the whole organism. That's synecdoche is the term for that rhetorically. The head could refer to uh, the, the top of, of something, of a top of a mountain or the top of a pillar. The capital of a pillar could be called the head. Uh, the head could refer to the leader of a particular group. So you would have the, the headmaster at a school, for example, is the, uh, the, the head of all of the masters, the, the leading kind of figure at a school. A head could refer to that which is preeminent or that which is foremost. A uh, head could refer to that which is controlling the rest of the body. And so some, uh, uh, some translations of Scripture will actually try to figure out what metaphor Paul's trying to use and where he writes head, where he has kephale here in chapter 11, they will put that in. And so another one, for example, is, is source, that you have the head of a river, where the river originates, uh, could be called the head of it. So, that, so head could mean source. So here it would, would say that the, the source of every man is Christ, the source of the woman is man, the source of Christ is God, that Christ emanates from God. Maybe, uh, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that there are a whole bunch of possibilities. And what we also know, I should tell you, uh, is that this is an exceptionally vexed and contentious passage for biblical scholars and has been for a long time. To the point, and I can't wait to make Joe read these articles, uh, in 2004, a scholar put out, I'm not making this up, an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature, which is a leading article for the Guild of New Testament Scholars, an article arguing that in, chapter, in verse 15 of chapter 11, when Paul says, uh, we have in the NIV, long hair is given to her as a covering, uh, that could also be read as a long hair is given to her instead of a testicle. Based on, here reading this in context, based on ancient medical texts which understood women's hair to actually be an extension of their reproductive organs, saying that men have uh, uh, testicles hanging outside their body, women have hair hanging outside their body, and just as, and this is the way he puts this, you'll, you'll, I mean, this is, you know, in, in good scholarly form, even though no contemporary person would agree with the physiological conceptions informing Paul's argument from nature for the veiling of women, everyone would agree with his conclusion prohibiting the display of genitalia in public worship. Um, I'm not making this up. And a few years later, a very fine scholar from Duke, uh, Mark Goodacre, wrote an article saying, um, no, 
it's, that's not what it is. You, mess, you, you messed it up. You didn't get the translation right. You're misunderstanding. And then this guy came back a few years later and said, no, I got it right. So the, the debate continues. Um, and I can look forward to more uh, articles like this to read. I, I, when, when I first encountered this article, I, I literally I sat at my computer and I typed out an email to a friend of mine who's a New Testament scholar. And he's, I said, I just, read, I just uh, spent 20 minutes reading an article about testicles and I got paid for that because that's my job. How awesome is that? I really did. And it is awesome. But the fact is, the reason we have these is because people are trying to wrap their heads around this text that seems really strange, and, and frankly, and to us today, on first glance, really offensive and really outrageous. And I confess that I was tempted, I was sorely tempted to do with this passage as we did with chapter 7 and to take a very long time to lovingly dissect this couple verses at a time to try to understand in full what Paul might be saying. You will probably be surprised to know that sometimes I exercise restraint and decide to just run through in a week something that we could take months to do. And the reason for that is, is for one, I, you know, I think then that would be too much of a Lenten discipline for us. And I think uh, this is probably not the time for that. But I also think that what we're supposed to do with this is not to, as the title of the sermon uh, indicates, to say, what would Tim Gunn say? What is, what is the proper way of, of, uh, of expressing style in worship? The, the point here is to not miss the forest for the trees, fascinating as the trees are, and as much as I genuinely enjoy sitting around and, and studying them. But to understand the broader point, which Paul is, is working through this entire passage of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 to 14, which is that the, the point of worship is to glorify God. The point of worship is not to glorify ourselves. The point of worship is not for us to have an experience. The point of worship is not for us to impress other people or to bother other people. The point of worship is certainly not for us to demonstrate our social status. In fact, if anything, we should be trying when we worship to not bring attention to ways in which we may be superior or inferior to somebody else. We should be trying to discourage those things which may be distracting to somebody else. We should be not trying hard to not show off, to not do things that would be offensive to somebody else, to not do things that would make people from the outside come in and look at us and say, what are those crazy people doing? Veiling their crosses. We, we should be doing things that glorify God and call attention to Him and not to ourselves. Which is why I think one very helpful way of reading, for example, chapter uh, 11, verse, um, uh, verse uh, my eyes are going. I, well, just, just following after you. Um, what? She's old... She, she, she robbed the cradle. Uh, 
when, when Paul says that, uh, that a woman ought to have authority on her head, sometimes that's translated, a woman ought to have a sign of authority over her head. Another way to understand, and some people will say, well, for her to wear a veil is basically to say, is like the equivalent of wearing a wedding ring, saying, I'm taken, you shouldn't be uh, uh, looking at me as, as, a, as somebody that, that you would uh, try, to, try to get close to. Um, but uh, it's verse 10. But, but rather, this could be understood, uh, translated as a woman ought to exercise authority over her own head, i.e., a woman ought to comport herself in a way that demonstrates that she is in control, not out of control, which this out-of-control thing, as we'll find out in chapter 14, seems to be a real problem, uh, but that she should, should do that in a way that is honorable and decent. And incidentally, we can't miss the fact that Paul has these instructions for both men and women. This is not a passage that's all about women and how they're supposed to behave in worship. Because he says, look, women, woman isn't independent of man. Man isn't independent of woman. Woman came from man. Man came from woman. But everything comes from God, right? So this is not uh, a place where Paul is trying to elevate one sex or denigrate one sex. Paul is trying to say, trying to put everything in perspective. He's trying to put everything in the perspective that it all comes from God and all worship is supposed to be glorifying God and honoring God. So everything that we do in worship needs to be designed to glorify God and not ourselves. And I think for us, certainly the question of whether uh, somebody is wearing a, a hat or not, whether somebody's hair is long or not, is probably not all that significant culturally. Although some people might find it disrespectful for a man to coming to church with, with his hat on. But the broader point is that we should comport ourselves in worship in a way that directs honor and glory to God, not to ourselves, in a way that emphasizes our unity in Christ, not the differences between us, in a way that doesn't distract our brothers and sisters from worship, in a way that doesn't dishonor people that are associated with us by the way that we are doing the things that we do. In other words, we need to be in control to do all things decently and in order, as Paul says later on in this passage. And the reason for that is, again, not because Paul is just OCD or CDO, because that's the proper alphabetical order, but that Paul wants all things to redound to God's glory. He wants all attention to be directed to God. He wants all glory to be given to Jesus Christ and not to us. Let's pray. Or as we engage with these difficult texts, I pray that we would be people who maintain an attitude of openness and receptivity to what your Spirit has to say to us. I pray that we would not use things that we find here as justifications for doing harm to others or bringing dishonor to you. 
I pray that as we read these things, that would also not give us cause to scandalize others. And I certainly pray that they would not be cause for us to reject you or the wisdom, the goodness of your word. And I pray that instead we would have the humility to hear what it is that your spirit is saying, to be patient when we have a hard time understanding what we see. I pray you'd give us the grace to respect and appreciate the work of people who dig around in libraries and museums, teach us the things that we need to know about these worlds that we don't live in anymore. I pray that in all of this we would maintain the proper perspective, that the reason we study Scripture is the same reason that we come to worship you on Sunday morning, that we sing these songs, that we pray these prayers, that we receive the body and blood of Christ, that we seek to honor and to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray that you would grow us more and more into people and into a community who do that. I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.